Hello, this is Joe Peters with In the Know of Joe. I'm about to interview Professor James Hughes, who is a retired dean of the Blaustein School at Rutgers, and we're going to discuss the general economic conditions in central New Jersey and how it affects our real estate market. Hopefully you can listen in. Okay, here we go. It's Joe Peters at Coldwell Banker within the know of Joe, and I've got Professor Jim Hughes from Rutgers on with me. He comes on about once a year. We're just talking. It's about a year back since we talked. But Jim, I'll let you introduce yourself and your background. Yeah, I'm a university professor now at Rutgers. Uh, I'm Dean Emeritus of the Edward J. Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy, where I hung my hat for 22 years. Uh, right now, I'm working with the School of Engineering. I have the freedom to work uh, in any part of the university I want. Uh, and I originally came out of the School of Engineering uh, in, uh, as an undergraduate. Uh, and I was a unique major. I was a planning engineer. And plan, urban planning had been in the school in the College of Engineering. Uh, and now I can proclaim I am the last living planning engineer. <laughs> well, congratulations, <Yeah>. I think. <laughs> they, they moved the program out of engineering when Livingston College opened up. So, uh, uh, I also like to proclaim I was the, I graduated number one in my class, but then I offer the, uh, op the, the uh, second part of that, which is there were only two of us. So oh. it wasn't. <laughs> be number one. So, so is planning like what we would consider civil engineering today? It originally, no, it's, it's uh, beyond pure civil. Civil deals heavily uh, with the infrastructure part of right. planning, while uh, urban planning in, uh, in itself has to deal with all the regulatory environment that constrains development, controls development, and the like. Uh, it also tries to look at what's the future population going to look like so you can actually do your physical plans. What's the future economy going to look like? What kind of jobs are going to be created? Uh, and how do you uh, measure all of the impacts on the environment of that or what are the economic impacts of development? So it's, it's a very, very wide disciplinary field. Uh, but it came out of engineering uh, in most places. Uh, particularly in the 19th century. And an interesting development was, you know, concern of the development of cities and the environmental impact of cities uh, in the 19th century came from two professions, you know, certainly civil engineering uh, on one side and public health on the other. Those were the ecologists okay. uh, and the like. And the disciplines really diverged in the 20th century, but now they're coming together again. Uh, whereby the, the health concerns, particularly on the public health side, see uh, health disparities uh, really vary uh, by where you live. Uh, and if you're living right. in the places, your health uh, cho choices and chances are not as good as those if you have a different zip code. So uh, it's ever changing, to say the least. So you got to be flexible. Well, it's. Uh... It's amazing how history repeats itself because uh, the mayor of um, Somerville invited me to walk around Somerville with him before I interviewed him, Dennis Sweeney, I think it is, if I'm getting his name, that's right. And then I, I said, what an amazing town Somerville is. I'd like to sort of document the history, who's the local historian. Well, his wife is the historian and she's a Rutgers PhD from nursing. And I interviewed Marge twice on the history up until about uh, 1860, and then the history from 1860 to 1920. And I learned, so I'm a, I love history. I just, I consume history like it's like, I can't get enough of it. And she said something I never realized. And we got into the second world war. The first, we went to the war museum in London to, study the Second World War, especially the end of it, because we went across to uh, Normandy and Berlin. Um, but they had a big thing on the First World War, and I got into it then, and she said something I never realized. So I talked to her, is that the First World War ended because of the plague. And 
if you study it, we really ran out of resources. Everybody that was in a war was digging up the streets to get pipes to make bullets. But uh, it, it's almost similar to 100 years later here. Here we are. And, and we talked a little about the Roaring Twenties again. We've got, we've got a war going on, potentially could be bigger than it is. And there's a lot of political ins and outs on it. But we're, we're coming off a plague, we're coming off a war, and we're taking a look at a recession. And what does this mean to us going forward? It's, it's almost with the last results of the election, we now are back to stalemate rather than one side pushing but we're not, don't seem to be moving forward in my mind. What are your thoughts there? That's that, and I gave you 108 things to talk about. So. Yeah, we saw the parallels to the Roaring Twenties, you know, in the past two years in terms of coming into an era, starting off certainly uh, with a recession, uh, with a pandemic, uh, but also the Roaring Twenties was really fueled by technological advancement, uh, yes. particularly uh, uh, efficient, very efficient automobiles, automobile aid uh, uh, advancements. So it was an automobile-driven era, which uh, spilled over into adding highways and other uh, highway infrastructure and the like. Uh, that was a key dynamic uh, for the decade, and it really was unprecedented prosperity for about eight years in there from 1922, 21, 22 to 19, uh, 29. And a similar uh, impact with information technology, uh, uh, biotechnology uh, spawned by uh, the pandemic. So, you know, we advanced uh, uh, four years in, in terms of uh, online meetings in the space of four weeks. You know, nobody heard of Zoom in February, uh, but everybody right. using Zoom in March. And had we not been forced to do it, uh, it might have been uh, 2025 before we really started uh, taking advantage of the technology. And the technology has only uh, improved since then. So, and then all the, the advancements in terms of COVID-19, uh, the medical strides and treatment that were made since then, uh, and that's just unfolding. So this technique would be probably uh, information technology uh, and biotechnology and the like are going to be some of the uh, economic engines. Uh, but in the short term, uh, <clears throat> we're having difficulties in terms of uh, inflation and how the uh, pandemic unfolded and impacted the world economy. You know, with, the, uh, with the pandemic and the shutdowns, all of a sudden the supply chain systems broke down. Uh, supply shortages emerged and buying power was built up because of the stimulus payments and households uh, spending was constrained. They couldn't go to restaurants. When they wanted to buy a car, there was no inventory to buy cars. So we had a period of inventory shortages, supply chain snarls and the like. Uh, and <clears throat> starting uh, in February of this year, all of a sudden uh, households were freed of restrictions and started spending. Uh, we had severe inflation emerging. So the first half uh, uh, of this year uh, through, through the summer, uh, we really had uh, goods inflation that that pushed up inflation really to the highest levels in 40 years. You have to go back to Paul Volcker in 81, 82, the oil crises which spawned uh, the high inflation uh, of that era. And initially, the Federal Reserve bought the argument that, oh, this is just transitory. Uh, it's it's going to fade away by the time... Uh, goods production resumes and supply chains snarls are worked out and the like. Uh, pretty soon that was relegated to history. It was banished, that term transitory. Right, we don't hear it much is Goods production, goods uh, inflation has started to decline later this year, uh, but services inflation is now uh, the driving force. And essentially mm -hmm. 
labor-intensive, labor-short service industries such as restaurants and travel and what have you, face-to-face -face types of activities. So uh, we're faced with uh, that inflationary factor. And then the Fed this year finally realized we, they may have made a mistake being overstimulating the economy. Uh, and so they started raising interest rates uh, in the early spring. And then the past uh, uh, three cycles that they went through, the past three meetings, they increased uh, the federal funds rate by 0.75% three times. Uh, and that was the fastest rate of increase in, in over several decades. Uh, and they were desperate to make up for the mistake of overstimulus. So they're trying to, trying, partially it would be demand destruction. Uh, they're, they're using a more kindly tone of slowing the economy so that inflation would slow down uh, and we can get back to business as normal. Uh, they're going to meet next week on Tuesday with the final meeting of the year and the expectation is that it's they're going to increase it by another half a percentage point, but they also made an announcement which roiled the markets at times. Uh, yeah, we may not we may slow the rate of increases, but the final rate's going to be higher than we anticipated uh, several months ago. So we're left with all that uncertainty. Uh, but I think the current malaise right now is we are in the uh, longest period of pre-recession fears, probably in history. I mean, it's been building up now for six months. Everybody's anticipating a recession uh, sometime in 2023 because of the interest rate increases. Uh, and so far, uh, the labor market has been extraordinarily resilient. Uh, it's That's what I was gonna say. That's it, the one missing link so far is jobs haven't diminished. You know, yeah, we still, it peaked at 2.0, and that was in the summer, there were two unfilled jobs for every person seeking work. Uh, right. It's up a little bit to 1.75 jobs for every person uh, seeking work. But that's like going from 75 miles an hour to 65 miles per right. hour. Right, you're still going pretty fast. Right. And the one area that uh, uh, has seen the major impact of those interest rate increases is housing. Uh, and mortgage yep. rates more than doubled this year. Uh, when you go back to the Paul Volcker era, you know, when mortgage rates hit 20%, uh, sometimes like, well, boy, it's not so bad. It did double. <laughs> it's like probably what, six and a half percent now between six and a half and seven. Yep. Uh, but boy, has that cut down the people who, uh, qualify for a mortgage and yeah i mean a first-time buyer has to earn 25 to thirty-five thousand more just to afford the house he could have bought at the first of the year so they're out of the market and unless their pop mama pop are helping or they hit the lottery they're going to just sit it out and so uh housing production starts have declined uh sales have declined uh you know we did have that post uh pandemic in 21 and in, in 2020, 21, we really had uh, a housing boom or a housing boomlet, a suburban single boom uh, emanating from the recession and millennials choosing home ownership. Um, but the uh, increase in mortgage rates have put the kibosh on that. So uh, the housing market is, uh, is suffering right now because of that dramatic change. And so that's what the Fed is deliberately trying to do. It's trying to slow down uh, consumer spending, uh, consumer buying, uh, reduce the inflationary pressures. The holy grail is a soft landing. That is, they slow the economy uh, enough to lower inflation, but not tip us into recession. Uh, yeah. Cases, that's very, very difficult to do. Raising interest rates uh, is like using a sledgehammer. And you know, it seems like they're trying to use interest rates as a scalpel that they can really micromanage the economy by a quarter percent here, a half a percent here. But it takes a long time uh, for the interest rate increases to filter through the entire economy. So the danger really could be a, a, a very hard landing sometime in 2023. But my quip on this is, you know, when, when all forecasters and economists uh, are asked what's going to happen uh, 
you know, preface their remarks by saying, well, we're in uncharted territory. So it's very, very hard uh, to figure this out. What they're really saying is we don't have a clue. Right. right. Forces at work and nobody really knows how they're all going to interact and play out. But there is a danger of, you know, a, a significant downturn uh, in 2023. And I hope the Fed is able to engineer that soft landing to minimize the pain. One of the economists that I listen to, she's really a futures person, Kathy Wood, and she hasn't had a successful two years because she's five years into the future. And everything that's five years into the future is worth, the stocks are worth 30% they were a year ago. Um, But five years from now, you're probably going to be rich if you want to put some money in them. But she said something in this month's forecast that was, I thought, interesting. And she's saying the Fed is continually to to be using backward for focusing indicators, in other words, trailing indicators versus future indicators. And that's the same thing that was happening in the late 20s, last 100 years ago. And then they pivoted. And that's what caused the recession. And she's saying, it's almost like what they're doing is horrible and to do the opposite could be worse. There's no way out. Um, if they pivot and make it worse. I, I think the missing part, which is unemployment, shows up right after the holiday season. I mean, I'm, I came out of the retail sector. I worked for Macy's and Allied stores and sold for SAP and Oracle just in the retail vertical. So I understand it fairly well. Um, we're looking at major companies on the borderline, um, people like Kohl's who can't, can't find a buyer because their stock dropped in half. People like Pennies who are looking to buy them, it'd be like merging the Edsel and the Titanic in my mind. And then you got Walmart just quietly shut all the stores in Canada and have massive inventory problems as, as well as Target. Uh, we could see some really big pullback here in retail, which is massive numbers of jobs. So once we come through holidays, which is typical layoff anyway, it could be severe. Yeah, and we've got in many uh, good good sectors of the economy, uh, we've gone from tremendous goods shortages to now glut. That's targeted. Oversupplied. Uh, Right. They what? They bought what consumers decided they didn't want anymore before it got here. Now they own it and they can't sell it. And what's been what's been sustaining uh, uh, consumer spending, and, and it's been it's still relatively good, is uh, the excess savings built up uh, in 21 and 22. Such a, I think we now have 1.75 trillion nationally uh, uh, in uh, in excess savings, that savings above where it would have been had we not had the pandemic, and mm. the rescue, the rescue funds, support funds, and then uh, slowed spending, particularly in 2021, have left us with that enormous glut. It had been two trillion a couple months ago, but the savings rate has dropped below two percent. You know, savings rate. And the credit card rate is on the rise. Yeah. And now you got to talk about levels of the economy. If you get the the bottom 40% of the economy, that's where high credit card usage and the people, the savings are probably paying their bills off every month, but we're not seeing it. So who's going to get laid off? It's going to be that 40% on the bottom. But there's some high tech layoff too. I mean, we're overburdened in a lot of industries. And a lot of industries are still, we still have a shortage of pilots. It was the, so it's, yeah. a, it's a, a tale of multiple economies coexisting with one another. I think one of the things, um, Marilyn's cousin Ronnie, what came out of NAM and became a helicopter pilot there and it, with no training. I mean, they put him in a helicopter and he flew, but eventually he got licensed and he headed uh, AT&T's fleet, which I think was two helicopters, but it was still a pretty good job, but he had to retire at 60. Now they're trying to get people to come back. I'm not saying they're looking for him to come back, but all those pilots that they furloughed, they're looking for him to come back to, to re-stimulate. It, it, I don't know what the right word is, but it seems like we're pretty screwed up. <laughs> um, there doesn't seem to be an overall game plan. And and what I'm seeing in housing, real estate-wise, is that 
probably 15% of our housing in New Jersey is new construction and new construction's in the dumpster. Okay. It's, it's a, we're building too high for what we need. And there's lots of reasons, um, regulatory and inexpensive land and whatever. So the housing that's existing, if you read all the doom and gloom on real estate that you see on YouTube and other places, they talk about massive losses in new construction. Well, we're not big in new construction in Somerset and Hunterdon County where I work. Somerset's bigger than Hunterdon County, but if, if we were 10% new, new construction across both of those, as far as sales, it'd be a lot. So then we take a look at existing inventory and we had the move westward from New York City, which hit the brakes about nine months ago, somewhere around June, we had nobody coming making massive offers anymore. And at the same time, we still have more buyers than sellers. And the sellers are in a seller's market under two months worth of inventory, all the way up to eight or 900,000. So we're not having a bad year. We're just not seeing the price appreciation the way we've seen it. So my limited outlook is it will probably get worse from the top down eventually and we'll see it. But for right now, you're better off selling your house this year than next year because the prices aren't gonna go up anymore. Uh, it, we're gonna be lucky if they don't pull back. Um, one forecaster I saw said that we're usually at 8.1% of discretionary income. It's been that way for 40 years and we're now at 9.7. So that's like a 24% VIG and that 24% VIG over two years means we got to raise wages 10% should be pretty easy being this close to New York and lower prices by at least not letting them go up anymore. The other 14% and we'll be back to normal in two years, but the market is normalizing. We're, we're back to not seeing multiple offers above asking. We're back to normal purchase contracts where people have home sale contingencies and mortgage contingencies and appraisal contingency, inspection contingencies in there. So it's the same analogy you used. We were doing 85 miles an hour, now we're doing 65 miles and it seems by the numbers slow, but we're still moving pretty fast in resale inventory. The biggest problem I see is that the person who would move up down sideways, which causes two sales, isn't going to do it till the interest rates drop. And that causes a bigger problem than a first time buyer not buying, which usually has three or four sales to add it on because the first time buyer sells to a second time buyer to a thin, it just goes up the chain. I'm, I'm looking at it saying it's not so bad. The biggest issue we have in real estate from all the things you discussed right now, is not having enough inventory. If we had enough inventory, we would, uh, in effect, be in a much better position. And in looking at that, I'm looking all the way back to, uh, just looking for the chart I had open, but we're sitting at about 90% of the inventory we had last year we're doing about 82% of the sales we did last year. But if you look at it from three years ago, we're sitting with a third of the inventory we had three years ago on the market. So we're not seeing those first time buyers. We're not seeing the trade-ups. This is gonna have some sort of an implosion, some sort of an effect. I'm not gonna call it an implosion because sometimes things work out for the best. Yeah, well, we have been underproducing single family units, particularly the past 10 years. Share of single family units in the 60s and the 70s was about 75% of all housing units produced. Right. Uh, well, way below 50% at times during the past decade. Uh, and nationally, uh, it never ex in 2010 to 2020, a single family home production. Uh, never exceed 1 million units per year. So that's a very, very low production. It was even worse in New Jersey since we're a slow growth state. So uh, that leads to the affordability problems for first time buyers. And the single family units being built uh, are not for first time home buyers. They're very large 
you know, land is expensive, so builders have to build bigger houses to make sure that, that they're earning a, a decent profit on building it. That's a real problem going forward. And it's, you know, affordability is, is one of the words in the housing market. And that's, that's why uh, the, the rising interest rates are so painful because if we well, had much when, more inventory in there, there'd be much when better. Dennis problem. walked me around Somerville. He showed me 1,400 two-family, two-bedroom units going up, not two-family, 1,400 two-bedroom, all for rent, okay? He said there's a few townhouses going up for sale, but they're into supply chain problems. And this was a year ago. Um, but he said, and, and he didn't have the statistics to back it up. I put them in his head and we never really finished the conversation. I said, you're becoming Hoboken and Jersey City West. People are leaving the city and coming for the same thing. He said, right, we call them walking wallets. They walk downtown 28 times a a month and buy either a meal or a purchase. And they live on the outskirts and they like it and they stay. They may not stay in Somerville because of the limited amount of property, but they stay in the area. So it's good. And we're not, because we're not allowing big family units to be built that way, we're not overburdening the school population. So I think Somerville is a wonderful growth story. Plus he's got the uh, combination of ethnicity. Just look at the restaurants on the main street in Somerville, hoping, and I want to get Jack Cust on here in the next month or so, that we're going to see something like that happen in Flemington because that's Flemington sorely needs it. I mean, a, a main street without a liquor license is a story in itself. Yeah, well, one of the, I guess they are getting some new development. I haven't followed it that closely. The Turntable Junction. Uh, yeah, I did see that. That's all going to be residential development there. Right. So uh, I don't think you're ever going to get the density uh, in Flemington that you're going to get in uh, in Somerville uh, in the like. I mean, because he had a heck of a lot of problems getting his hotel approved there at the yeah. old courthouse. Uh, Somerville, I mean, Somerville also has uh, certainly rail service and then, you know, eventually, but problem is eventually can be a very long time, but eventually if you have uh, a one seat ride into Manhattan, uh, that would certainly help. But it's also hindered, even though it has rail service, hourly service rather than uh, half hourly service. Uh, the Northeast corridor line through New Brunswick during the rush hours, sometimes it's 20 minute headways between the trains. Uh, and that yes. makes it much more feasible uh, and the like. But it's also helped, you know, Somerville is also helped by, you know, work from home provisions. So if they don't have to do the commute five days a week and only do it two days a week and are able to work at home, uh, that ameliorates that uh, you don't have to do the, the tortuous commute twice a week and the like. So Dennis, so Dennis Sullivan, I said Sweeney, just to correct that, is the mayor and his wife is... Uh, Marge Sullivan, um, it, he, what he showed me that they did, and then we talked a little about what's going on in Flemington. Um, he said there's a six main street frontage and five or six on the side, a whole building coming down, going back up, and it's going to be Jack Hussun's steakhouse and a retail establishment, some offices. I said, how many meetings did it take to get that approved? He said, one. They came, it got approved. And I think one of the interesting things happened in Flemington, I'm not pitting one against the other because they're both beautiful towns, is that they changed mayors again and maybe that will have a development um, plus. But the mayor that was in for the last two years seemed to get a lot done that the previous mayor, who I talked to a lot, couldn't get done. So maybe you need that cantankerous kind of... Um, person in there to make things shake it up and make things happen. Time will tell. Yeah. But Somerville fortunately had the vacant land, you know, adjacent yes. the rail. The rail is important. I, I And there used to be a rail that went all the way over to Flemington. There now is a bus service that connects the two, but there's not a rail anymore. That is key. And, and Dennis said the same thing. If we ever do get the one seat ride into New York, this will blow us out of the water it's amazing and he's he's full right now he can barely accommodate everything's going on i talked to the people in his downtown area 
about a year ago, we walked up and down whatever the main street is in Somerville. Pardon me for not knowing it, Dennis. Um, and five different merchants told me how they survived through the COVID. They became international um, eBay type things and they found a way to survive. And the town was friendly enough to let them do that. And there's very, one guy even owned a second store because he had his first store in that little side street that turned into a walking mall and he built, built another one out on the main street. So it's two ways of looking at the same thing. And I'm saying one's right or one's wrong. But if you look at where Somerville came from in 1980, when the mall opened, it almost went out of business and, and Bridgewater was part of Somerville at that time. And uh, they just had a res an amazing bounce back. And now if you go walk through that mall, and I've always been in retail, and I see a lot of one-off stores in there that shouldn't be in there, like little calendar stores and seasonal stores. That mall is not doing well. No, I think the only two really uh, well-functioning malls are Short Hills and Garden State Plaza. You know, those, those are the ones with the Neiman Marcus uh, and the yeah. high-end uh, department stores, and they're in super affluent areas. But we've got a lot of Class B and Class C malls, and Class C don't have much of a positive future as a mall. I mean, they, well, I mean, and look at Phillipsburg. Phillipsburg is like one more step down the ladder. It's gone. <laughs> yeah. So um, you, you, you have to look at the buying habits a little bit to understand what, why it's happening too. And we'll get back on track in about two minutes. I mean, people got sequestered into their house. They learned how to do things about leaving the house because they couldn't leave the house, including getting Uber to deliver food and some other people. Most of that was lost leader business that was paid for um, actually by the buyer, but uh, that never became profitable. But I know... Marilyn and I used to have a game of how can we get this about leaving the house? And it's amazing how much you can get. There was, we're like a mile from a Walgreens in Clinton. And I said, the last place I want to walk into was a drugstore. So if there's a prescription ready, let's figure out how to get it delivered. I'll give I pay $5 for it. And people figured that out. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing with being the Zoom, as you call it, but there's so many other things that go with it. Um, I typically buy a new car every three years. At the end of 39 months, my car had 40,000 miles on it. There was no sense in trading it in. And secondly, there was nothing to trade it in for. So I bought the lease out. And then when hers came up, we did the same thing on hers. And all of those miles that I'm not driving, I'm not stopping for gasoline. I'm not stopping for food. I'm not doing lots of things. So our whole... It was almost like God's wake-up call <laughs> to give us this, unfortunately, for the people that passed from it. And I just had a brother-in-law pass last month, but it, it's, it's not a laughing matter. But we've rethought an awful lot. And, a lot, and part of it is retail, and that's why retail is suffering. It goes back to, at least from my analysis, a, a blockbuster video. And before Blockbuster emerged, uh, you had local mom and pop uh, uh, video stores, you know, with right. uh, and the like. But they'd only have one or two copies. So 90% of the time when you went to visit those stores, you came away empty-handed and disappointed. And then right. Blockbuster came along with 30 copies. So you could yeah. always get what you want. The same thing is uh, you, if you want an under-counter LED light for your kitchen. Uh, you would have to drive around to five different stores, wasting all the time to try to find out what's in the inventory in the store to get the light that you wanted. Uh, now uh, you order it in the morning and you'll get it the next day. Online. Clear the next day. It's unbelievable. You get stuff on Sunday, a $4 item gets delivered on Sunday, charge me $3 and delivered on Tuesday. I mean, this is nonsensical. And, and the, the real improvement all the way up to major appliances. I mean, yeah. it was for two years you couldn't get an appliance. Or you couldn't get a new mattress. Huh? And now right. they're having sales. 
Is there all well, this? You know, two years to get a Toyota at this point, I'm being told. Two-year waiting list, and it's above asking. And we're having Toyota fonts on TV. Where's the sense to this? People aren't buying that way. And when I sold Marilyn's car, I sold it to CarMax. And CarMax was there the next day with a certified check, no, no argument. Of, they're almost out of business. So maybe this isn't a good business model, but there was no argument. He says, I'm either going to buy the car or I'm not. We're going to quibble about price. And I signed two pieces of paper. He gave me the check. He lowered the truck, told the thing away. And you don't go to the auto dealer and argue about the trade-in value of your car anymore because people have found a new way to do it. And I think I think one of the real advances that uh, really saves a lot of time and anxiety is telemedicine. You know, where previously uh, you, you drive half hour, forty five minutes, sit in the waiting room for forty five minutes, have your ten minute appointment. So you waste about three hours. You can do it online. Uh, there's no waiting. There's no driving. Right. Um, like I mean. You know, a tremendous change, getting rid of something that was really a pain in the neck. And many times you do need the face-to-face, -face, but an awful lot of times in medicine, you do not. You just need the 10 or 15-minute face-to-face, or not face-to-face, electron-to-electron uh, conversation uh, and the like. And hopefully the insurance companies will facilitate that, making it, make it eligible for all the payments and the like. I hope, you, I hope you're right on that because uh, I, I headed education for 100 in Somerset, which became core association of realtors. I was on the board for six years and everything had to be in person. We had to give people 12 credits every two years and you couldn't do anything online. Two and a half years later, there is no in-person training. You have to do it online, which is what we wanted to do anyway. Back to God's wake up call. Why were we doing it that way? It's almost like because nobody wanted to change it. It's, 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 there's no reason. It's company policy. You know? <laughs> yeah, one of the things I'm doing now, uh, and uh, you, I've been, we've been all been doing Zoom, that we're using specifically this time my, Microsoft Teams. But uh, right. I've agreed to uh, head this uh, team at the School of Engineering, and they have a big contract with New Jersey Transit to look at the future of Hoboken Terminal, which is a magnificent structure, but severely damaged by uh, Hurricane Sandy. Uh, it's low-lying in the river. Uh, it's susceptible to climate change. Every time it rains, there's minor flooding around the station and in the station. Right. So we have a team that's to look at uh, New Jersey Transit's trying to rethink uh, how, the, how it can be repurposed, uh, revitalized, not only structurally, but in terms functionally. So we have a, a team uh, with somebody in Philadelphia, somebody in New York, uh, up in Hunterdon County. Uh, we have a Arndt, Arndt Bait, Batesner, who is a, a global transportation expert, and he's headquartered in Zurich, Switzerland. And so it's oh. real, but he travels around. So. This week, he was in Berlin when we had our weekly meeting. And it's just like you and I talking together, except he's in Zurich. Next week, yep. he'll probably be in uh, uh, Singapore. I mean, he's just going around the world, visiting rail stations. Like We couldn't have run the project like that without, without having some uh, technological capability. Because you could, there with so, so, the distance is so great, you couldn't have face-to-face -face meetings, maybe once or twice a year. But here you do it weekly. We are on demand almost. I had a giant season tickets used to be really hard to get. They're a little easier since they haven't had a couple of good years, but I gave them up this year. But about five years ago, we started using the Sea Caucus Junction, which I don't think is the Hoboken station you're talking about. Sea no. Caucus is right before you go into the Lincoln Tunnel. And so we would drive up there, park. It was the same parking as if you went to Giant Stadium, but the last two miles was by train, it was eight minutes. You're there, where it could take you two hours to go that last couple of miles. And uh, what amazed me was that, Jim, when I went there, I wasn't thinking about taking another train. 90% of the people that got off the shuttle from Giant Stadium to Caucus Junction changed trains and went further. They weren't bringing their car with them. And I'm saying, you know, it's working. 
it's you've got to give people a reason to want to do it and saving time and maybe not having to drive after a couple of beers at the football game all added together to i was totally impressed with it it, it was uh we need more of it and yeah. i think what we're looking at now with the prices of automobiles and we get the whole ev thing and um we're looking at the average car I read is on the average car on the road in the US today is 15 years old. And that blends in from a lot of people always drove old cars because they couldn't afford it. But now more people are keeping the car like we did. They're now four and five years old instead of two or three years old. And we don't really need the car as an expendable the way we used to because of Zoom. And then secondly, if you do need a car and it could be an EV, you could take that mindset of, well, why do you need the whole car? Why not ship in with seven or eight other people and stagger your hours and let it drive each one of you to work with autonomous driving and not have the whole expense? Yeah, you still need one car for the family to do things, but your commute car may not be what you need anymore. So things are changing rapidly and you always get that resistance, the inertia of, uh, I'm not sure that'll work for me, but it's working for everybody else. Why wouldn't it work for you if you just think about it? Well, that's sometimes you need uh, something pushing you uh, into using it. And that's what the pandemic did. That's the real benefit. That's what the pandemic did, right. And I think that's what the current administration thinks they're trying to do by saying, um, we're not going to dig for any fossil fuel, and but there's no plan to get us from A to B. I mean, it's a it's a, not a well thought out thing. It's a, it's a great idea, but we went to the Grand Canyon last year because we couldn't go to Europe. We like to go to Europe every second year, and never seen a Grand Canyon. We did Bryce Canyon and whatever, and we sat at the edge of the Grand Canyon and Ranger Doug had give us a pep talk at six o'clock, and we're on the north rim looking at the south rim, and I think that's a mile higher or something, but. He was explaining the layers of the Grand Canyon. And he said that that bottom layer is granite. That bottom layer is 110 million years old. And it happened when the Pacific Ocean overtook the entire United States. And if you go up two or three levers, that one's only 80 million. And that was when the Atlantic Ocean went the other way, some 30 million years later. And he said, and why did all of this happen? Because climate change keeps happening. And you walked away from that saying to yourself, why the hell are we so worried? I, I'll be the first one to say we could do a better job of climate, but to, to think that we're going to change by doing what we're doing is just, you, you got to go sit at the Grand Canyon and listen to Ranger Doug, you'll never think the same way again. Um, I got into reading about history. I'm reading about the, the Bronze Age, which was 1200 BC. The Bronze Age ended with worldwide plight from some reason. Nobody knows why it ended because there was no written history at that point in time. And it could have been just that kind of thing that one of those, the ocean comes across or the crops all fail. Um, and then they talked about Cleopatra as one of the major failures. They, they documented now that Cleopatra's crop failure was a year after an Aleutian Island volcano blocked the sun and she probably went through, first of all, she married the wrong guy, but she went through this whole plight because of something that happened halfway around the world. So it's happening and you're not going to stop the volcanoes from blocking the sun. But I, I do admit we can do a hell of a lot more. So you were of an there's more of an impetus now in that, uh, you know, Russia is using energy as a strategic weapon. So we only have to produce more carbon-based uh, uh, energy just to survive presently and to counter Russia. Uh, but we also have to future-proof ourselves. So we got to do both. We got to do yeah. more of oil, but we've also got to vastly accelerate uh, alternative sources of energy uh, and the like going forward. And to some degree, it's working. I mean, the price of solar panels has dropped so dramatically uh, over the past 10 years. Uh, so you know, if we ever 
you know, we've got a great storage system, a set of batteries in New Jersey. Do you know that? Oh, oh yes, the EVs. Nope. No? Yards Creek Pumping Station. Okay. In 1965, I think it opened. PSA E&G just sold it. It's in Warren County, uh, Yards Creek. And what it is is uh, they have a reservoir at the bottom of a mountain, and they have a reservoir on the top of the mountain. I've heard this story. During the day uh, or dur during the night when uh, energy is cheap and there's not much demand, they pump the water to the upper reservoir. And then at periods of high electricity demand, uh, they let the water run down to spin the it's turbine to create electricity. Generation. So we had that in 1965, which is 35, 55 years ago. Amazing. One. Amazing. So we were talking a little before we went on the air about your two new studies. One is the New Jersey population trends and the other is the Rutgers campus. Why don't you talk a little about each of those? Well, first of, first of all, I mean, if people are interested, it's, it's available on Amazon. It's called New Jersey Population Trends. It'll pop up pretty quickly. Uh, and truth in advertising, uh, we do not accept the royalties. We donate all the royalties to student financial aid or student need funds at, at Rutgers University. So there's no personal profit for us by uh, uh, pumping the book at all. But basically, it's, it's two dimensions. One is the long historical sweep, starting with uh, uh, Native American populations on the Jersey soil. Then uh, we move through the various uh, 200, 200 years of, you know, since the first census uh, in 1790, and essentially the rise and fall of cities, uh, and then using that as the changing uh, composition of the state's population over time, uh, immigration, reverse immigration, uh, and then uh, ultimately move into what's happened currently. What are the current trends, you know, after 200 years of population change? And then finally speculate a little bit about the future, you know, what are the future generations going to look like when they age? So uh, it's a pretty comprehensive book. Uh, and I think it's going to be useful, not for the current data, because we still don't have the, the full data from the, from the 2020 census. So we ended at about 2018, but the trends were quite clear at that point in time. So it's going to be if somebody's trying to look at the future and they have later data, this is a good baseline to start with, but also to really understand why New Jersey is the way it is today. Uh, so that, that came out... Uh, I guess February uh, of 2022. I haven't checked in uh, on how well it sold, uh, but it was uh, in a couple of years in the making. Right. The uh, second one is the uh, transformation of the Rutgers campus from uh, its real inception in 1809. And <clears throat> this is really a photographic odyssey but a lot of explanatory te text on how the university evolved, uh, what were the constraints on the development compared to other universities, uh, and what was the actual physical pattern uh, of development. And we look at uh, a couple hundred different buildings that comprise the campus, and we try to do find historical materials, maybe the building was supposed to look like with a historical rendering, how it looked when it was completed, how it looks today. So we have a number of stacked images indicating transformations in various parts uh, of the campus. So it's ultimately, we're almost done. Uh, we're getting the last photos that we need. We're getting the last permissions. We probably have four or 500 images uh, within the book. Uh, and you know they have to be of high resolution for, for uh, press requirements. We have to make sure that we have the appropriate permissions for the use of each one of those. But that task uh, is coming to an end. But this was really a, a, a four-year-plus uh, time frame to get it where it is. And uh, if we get it done and into the press's hand by January, February 
maybe we'll have a paper copy in our hand by December of 2023. The production process is a long Will there be paper anymore by then? <laughs> yeah. So hopefully this will be attractive, uh, you know, certainly to, uh, again, uh, all our royalties are gonna be dedicated to various student support funds at the university. But I think we'll, a lot of people are really interested in the campus. Uh, right. Don't know why it is the way it is. I'm gonna look into it myself. Both of these are of high interest to me. Um, I remember the first, I went to Rutgers first in the early 60s and the Queens building was where the, the 17, 1776 building was where you yeah. registered. And uh, God, it's like, it doesn't look like anything like that anymore. Maybe that building is still there, but the campus sure doesn't. Oh look. yeah, that, that whole, the old Queens block, again, they, yeah, an, an attorney's family, Parker family, uh, donated that block of land uh, uh, to Rutgers College. Previously, it was in a, a wooden structure on George Street near the Heldrick Hotel. And this is the still oh. back in the ground there on George Street, indicating College Hall was located on that site. But also, it, it started on uh, Albany Street in the uh, sign of the Red Lion Tavern. And that's where uh, the first classes were held. When the British invaded New Brunswick, they hightailed it out to Millstone Borough in Somerset County in the Harlingen House, which has since been, long since been demolished, but it right. was in Millstone River. Uh, then they moved out to uh, uh, North, the church on the North Branch, and it's on old, intersection of Old York Road and See North Branch, uh, uh, North Branch Road, uh, and there's a big, you know, a two by two plaque on a pole that was erected about ten years ago, indicating that Rutgers was located on that site. Then eventually, at some point, it was in the Wallace House in Somerville, which is a historic. I, I was just going to say, you're meeting where Marge Sullivan was telling me about the history, because she was telling me in 1778, I guess it was, George Washington actually had 8,800 people in the Brunswick area, and you know, the history of Millstone, and they opened up the five generals house tours, which are his five chiefs generals. So I took that tour last year, and the most amazing thing, I was in the Wallace House, it started there in a Target parking lot across the ball stadium. And they were saying, and upstairs was a slave headquarters. I said, what slave headquarters? I never realized we had slaves in New Jersey. It's like so much, and I'm in the history. There's so much you don't know. Well, we, co we cover the, uh, the slave population in New Jersey and then the great migration from the uh, African-American migration from the South to the North uh, during the uh, 20th century. Drawn by World War One and World War Two factories uh, and the like, so yeah, there's a lot of uncovered history. Uh, and one of the things is, and it's really hard to research, is some of the history says you know the, the, the country was uh, you know largely uninhabited. You had some Native American tribes and the like. Uh, current research shows that it was far more extensive in terms of the number of Native Americans that lived you know, in New Jersey on the Eastern seaboard uh, and the like, uh, greatly underestimated in early histories. So we touched on that a little bit. That's certainly not our area of expertise, but right. looking at the population of New Jersey, that was the population of New Jersey before the colonists. That's amazing. And I, I'm just trying to piece the story together. Um, in four years now, we're going to have our 250th anniversary in Somerset County, which was a lot of the Revolutionary War history, is going to have a big come see what we have in Somerset County. We have so much. It's amazing. And the biggest problem is funding it four years in advance so that we can do it because usually you fund it the year it happens somehow. Um, I have one other loose thought that I uncovered by listening to somebody on the economics in general. And I wanted to ask you about it before we break, and we are at about our limit. Um, 
we have probably four more years of first-time buyers of everything that was normal coming at us before we hit the population implosion where we're going to have less first-time buyers. But buyers and people in general spend money between their 25th and their 55th birthday. And then after 55, it sort of becomes, I call it Archie Bunker, but aging in place, you, you start to spend less and, and age in place. Because we're having less new people come up the pike because of the population implosion and more older people like myself, who's closer than 80 to 70 anymore, uh, much closer. Uh, how do you see that phenomenon of people not spending the money the way the, way the previous generation spent affecting the economy of, of New Jersey and, and the nation in general? Well, once we're, we're given uh, fertility rates and the like, which have been below replacement level for decades, but uh, a pretty sharp decline or not absolute number of births declining in 2006, uh, on a sustained downward trajectory, we are definitely going to be hitting uh, a demographic crisis. I mean, it certainly hit Europe. Uh, I think the fertility rate in Italy, replacement level fertility is 2.1. That is, every woman would have to produce 2.1 children to produce ultimately two reproducible adults. Uh, you know, we're about 1.7 now in United States and we, New Jersey's mirrors the United States. And, uh, in France and some of the European nations, Italy, uh, it's like 1.2. Uh, and China's in the same boat for many decades. They had a one child. Uh, right. And Japan's even worse. There. And so they're facing demographic stagnation, slow growth. So it's going to be slow growth. Uh, uh, the one situation that may alter it significantly is uh, a lot of people want to come to the United States. So, so I see this as still as a land of opportunity. So uh, it depends if we're ever able to manage our immigration policy, get them very rational to get the, the quality of the labor force that we need to keep the economy humming. So what it might mean ultimately is the, the degree to which we can substitute uh, automation and technology for labor and the like. I mean, Amazon is starting to do that in their warehouses. Their ro robots are getting increasingly sophisticated and the like because they face tremendous labor shortages. And then the same thing with uh, uh, knowledge-based industries, to the degree artificial intelligence can, can, sub can uh, take a lot of techniques that uh, now require humans uh, and substitute technology for them. So that's going to uh, have an impact. Uh, but again, that the conditions of underpopulation uh, you know, may mean either people have to be much more productive, they have to produce more per hour because there's fewer humans. And if technology can help them do that, that may, we may be able to maintain our standard of living. If not, uh, then uh, it's going to be very difficult to maintain the standard of living going forward. But whenever we start thinking like that, somehow technology bears us out. Uh, right. First, we introduced mainframe computers in the early 19, late 50s and early 1960s. We thought that was going to cause uh, surplus human beings uh, because of what they're adding to the uh, productivity uh, um, counts and the like. But uh, it's something to worry about, but not serious worry at this point. Well, um, the sun's going to explode sooner or later. It's a supernova. Just as long as it doesn't explode in our lifetime, I think we're all happy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but what has happened elsewise in lifetimes, like 1200 BC, nobody knows. Uh, it's, I, I think what you're talking about is where my mind is, is that we're going to see tremendous advances in technology, new things. Um, and Kathy Wood said it best in last night's thing. Uh, technology has been advancing exponentially. In other words, it doesn't go one, two, three, four, it goes one, two, four, eight. 
and each time it doubles, it gives us a 30 to 70% economy of scale back. Um, and as a result, we're now doing things for 500 bucks that used to cost 300 million and take three years, like, like genome chains and things like that. So that's all there. The opposite side is when you get into this thought about guaranteed um, income, because we're gonna be through these changes, putting people out of work or at least need to be retrained what do we have them do and how do we support them through this? I read one theory is we give them artificial work and they'll never know it as long as we pay them to do the artificial work to keep them active and they think it's producing something, they'll be happy campers. I'm saying, good grief, that just sounds like, <laughs> it just sounds absurd to me. Well, here's one area that uh, we're, we're really labor short and the like in, we have an aging housing inventory in New Jersey. So uh, how many uh, housing units do we have? Perhaps well over 3 million. And these 3 million houses have to be maintained. Uh, and <clears throat> we need a labor force of electricians, plumbers, roofers, people that really understand housing, understand HVAC system, understand housing problems uh, and the like. Uh, and there's a lot of people out there would pay a premium to get a good electrician, to get a good plumber. Uh, and I agree. So, you know, we have the possibility of providing an enormous number of skilled jobs in those areas just to maintain uh, the housing stock. And uh, there was an old joke at one time where uh, uh, this guy called in a plumber, plumber was there uh, and uh, gave him the bill and the Guy said to the plumber, $100 an hour. You know, I'm a lawyer and I don't charge that much. And he says, Well, when I was at a lawyer, I charged the same thing that you did $100 an hour. <laughs> well, and you know, Jim, they're great paying jobs. My son in law, that my grandson, um, he's in his late 30s at this point in time, became an electrician two years ago. He can't believe what he's making. He, his, Fiance said, look, you're never going anywhere in what you're doing. I'm in a good job. Why don't you go back and learn a trade? And he's now an electrician. My other son-in-law, grandson, was a, a VW parts counter person. You wouldn't believe what they pay those people in a VW dealership. He left that to become a policeman. It was a massive step back. Same thing. His wife had her master's, went into teaching. So he went back and he just gave me a great granddaughter two months ago. Uh, these kids are, it's there. It is, you're, you're right. It is there. It doesn't have to be new and we don't know what it is yet. There's, there's jobs that pay well that are so short on people. But uh, at the same time, the world keeps spinning. And, and I like your story about immigration because I think this world will leave it. Um, I read this story that said, if you wanted to get a job in Italy, you have to and immigrate to Italy to get it. You have to prove that nobody else in Italy wants that job and you are the only qualified person to do it. But if somebody in Italy wants your job, they can move here tomorrow. As a matter of fact, they can walk across the border right now. And that's where it's tilted the wrong way. Uh, we sort of need, I, I'm totally open to people immigrating and most of our pharma people are immigration right now. Um, but within the laws that we've got, it's, it becomes political very quickly. Uh, Jim, this has been a wonderful, thought-provoking conversation, and I appreciate the hour you've spent with me. So anything you'd like That's to say terrible. in closing? <clears throat> well, the economy has, I'm a little bit optimistic. We may hit some bumpy parts going forward, but... If we go back to April 2020, uh, you know, at the depths, uh, you know, after we had lost, you know, 720,000 jobs in New Jersey, uh, I could never imagine, uh, you know, where we are today. The economy, it's staying power and strength, right. so resilient. And, you know, we lost, roughly, we lost 725,000 We've recaptured three quarters of a million seven hundred and fifty thousand. So, you know, we're considerably we're about four or five percent greater 
in terms of number of jobs than we were before the recession. So we, you know, we've fully recovered, uh, and we still have an unemployment rate below three point five percent. So I would have never forecast that. That's amazing. Okay, uh, hang on. I want to chat with you a second, but I'm going to sign us off. And that was Jim Hughes. I'm going to put links to where you can find information about his two projects on the blog post, uh, the podcast post that's a blog post. And uh, Jim, thank you very much for coming on. Great talking with you. Wow, I think you'll agree. There was a ton of information in the 45 minutes or so that Professor Hughes spent with us. I enjoyed talking with them on a semi-annual basis and getting updates like these. Thank you for listening in. One of the biggest decisions in your lifetime is buying or selling a house. Choosing a realtor with strong client communication, technology, and marketing skills will dramatically improve your chance of success. That's why Hunterdon and Somerset's residents rely on Joe Peters. Joe believes his clients deserve a smooth and seamless experience, not a roller coaster ride. As a Coldwell Banker Sales Associate with 20 years of experience, he's helped hundreds of people to achieve their goals and dreams, no matter where they were in the buying or selling process. Here's what his satisfied customers have to say. Joe guided us through the process of selling our home and made a complicated transaction appear seamless. Joe is diligent and responsive without being pushy and truly keeps his clients' best interest in mind. He would return calls within minutes if he didn't pick up. Joe accomplishes this by approaching every transaction from a business perspective. Initially, he tries to fully understand your goals and dreams and make them his own. Then he takes the mass amount of data that's available and distills it down to a few understandable action points. And finally, he controls the entire process through technology and marketing. The end result to you is a smooth, rewarding customer experience. Let Joe show you how to take his professional expertise and put it to work for you. To contact Joe, go to jpeters.com. You can call 908-238-0118 or text to 908-304-4660.